Ciao, fifth graders. I hope you are all well. You're probably wondering, Mr. Dion, where did you get this awesome background music for the podcast? Is that the Beach Boys or something? No, fifth graders, I made this music. Using a program called Mixcraft, I combined various loops of musical instruments to create this song. I started with the beat and added the record scratches. If you grew up in the 1980s like me, the sound of someone manipulating a vinyl record on a turntable dominated a lot of the music you probably listened to. Then I added the cool bass line and I created this fun song. Fifth graders, I'm hoping you'll look at this current situation where we're all home and keeping our distance from one another as a chance for opportunity. I know it's a bummer that we're not in school and we can't hang out with our friends and extended family, but it's important not to become sad and worried. Where are the positives? Think about this as a time to try new hobbies, read more books, study new areas of interest. Look at it as finally having the time to plan your garden for the spring, to watch some movies that have been sitting in your must-watch pile to create music using programs like Mixcraft or GarageBand. If we keep our heads up, we're going to all be fine. All right, fifth graders, let's start with some math today. Before we left school, we were talking about statistics. Statistics is a branch of mathematics in which groups of numbers are compared. Statistics includes collecting, organizing, and interpreting data. Your attendance record at school provides your teachers with statistics on your participation in the classroom. Senators' voting attendance records on Capitol Hill are statistics that help us decide if they're doing a good job. Statistics are also used to compare athletes' achievements. Here are some neat statistics. Did you know that humans have been living on Earth for about 200,000 years? That's a pretty long time. But civilization as we know it has only been around about 6,000 years. Can you guess how many people there are in the world today? Well, at the time of this episode, there are an estimated 7,259,340,631 people right here on Earth. And a new person is born every 8 seconds. And did you know that the average human lives to be about 70 years old? But some people can be even older than that. The oldest person to ever live was a woman named Jean Cunnett. She lived to the age of 122 years old. That's almost double the average human lifespan. Let's take a look at this next video to learn some more interesting facts about humans and numbers. Okay, so to go along with statistics, we've been learning the language of statistics. For example, median, mode, and mean are basic vocabulary of statistics. Remember, median is the middle number in a set of data. To find the median, arrange the numbers in order from least to greatest. The number in the middle is the median. Also, mode. Mode is the number that appears most often in a set of data. Some sets of data have no mode. Other sets have two or more modes. And then mean, or average. Mean is the average number in a set of data. Fifth graders, I'd also like to add range today. Range is the difference between the greatest and least number in a set of data. So for example, in a basketball game, Anita played for 25 minutes, Jane played for 14, Caitlin played for 22 minutes, Josie 19 minutes, Tanisha 30 minutes, 
what would be the range? Well, Tanisha played for 30 minutes. That's the highest value, or the greatest value. Jane only played for 14 minutes. That represents the lowest value. So, 30 minus 14, you have a difference of 16. So the range is 16. In social studies, we've been talking about the War of 1812. The War of 1812 was an important conflict with broad and lasting consequences, particularly for the native inhabitants of North America. Before the war, the United States wanted to expand its territories. Tribal nations of the lower Great Lakes, including the Shawnee, Potomac, Ojibwa, and others saw their lands at risk. The same was true for the Muscogee Creek, Seminole, Choctaw, Cherokee, and Chickasaw in the south. The native leaders who emerged in response to this expansion shared a single concern, that of protecting tribal lands. There were those who sided with the Americans, but most native nations sided with the British against the U.S., believing that a British victory might mean an end to expansion. In all, more than two dozen native nations participated in the war. The Shawnee war chief, Tecumseh, and his brother the prophet, also known as Tenskatwa, played crucial roles in leading their people in the war. By 1811, Tecumseh had built a confederation of more than two dozen nations, all of whom hoped to stop the American settlers from taking their land. Tecumseh and his followers had observed people on the eastern coast and upper Great Lakes being removed from their lands by settler expansion and they had seen a domino effect as one removed nation encroached on another's land. Furthermore, both the French and Indian War, called the Seven Years' War in Canada, from 1756 to 1763, and the American Revolution, from 1775 to 1783, cost many Native nations lives and land. At the time, each Native nation consisted of a few to several communities, each speaking a different language. Tecumseh realized that he had to depend on interpreters to translate his conversations and speeches to each nation that he came into contact with. He also knew that he would have to raise a massive but focused army, drawing from these diverse nations a daunting task. Imagine trying to get all of Europe, with its different cultures and languages, to fight as a single army. Finally, Tecumseh's decision to forge an alliance with the British shows him to be a leader wise in the ways of stagecraft. The daily challenges of managing a large confederation and an alliance with the British would be daunting for any individual. Tecumseh preached his confederation and alliance point of view to various tribes, arguing that, in the big picture, a union of nations held the hope of stopping U.S. Western expansion. He gained respect in almost every case and many followers, although the Choctaws stood firmly for neutrality. During the war, the natives fought more than 40 battles and skirmishes against the U.S. In southern Canada, pro-British and pro-U.S. Iroquois found themselves fighting each other, but in most engagements, the native forces fought alongside the British. Perhaps the most significant battle took place in 1813 in Canada. Tecumseh and his warriors, deserted by the British forces, faced a pursuing army of Americans led by William Henry Harrison at the Battle of the Thames. As this confrontation became certain, 
Tecumseh promised his warriors that there would be no retreat. This battle, he felt, must be won in order to stop American westward expansion in all areas. But Tecumseh was mortally wounded, and his death and defeat marked the end of the native campaign to drive back white settlers. On a larger scale, the American victory cleared the way for the U.S. claim to the native interior of North America, with more treaty negotiations following, resulting in numerous removals of most of the eastern woodland communities to the west. After the War of 1812, the U.S. negotiated over 200 treaties that involved the ceding of native lands, and 99 of these agreements resulted in the creation of reservations west of the Mississippi River. Other native resistance movements sprang up, including the Black Hawk War of 1832 and the Second Seminole War from 1835 to 1842, but neither affected so many different nations as did the War of 1812. All right, fifth graders, if you could take out your Westing game books, if you have them, or if you're following along on the internet, if you found the text by searching Google, or if you're just following along, all of those things are okay. We're going to recap chapter 20. So, if you recall from the last episode when we read chapter 20, Doug's been following around Otis Amber. They go between the shopping center and Sunset Towers and then to a rooming house. Otis doesn't come out for hours, and then he goes back to Sunset Towers. Doug's been jogging the whole time and is grateful for his father's paper insoles, which really seem to work. At the hospital, Theo's being bandaged after accidentally causing an explosion in the chemistry lab. Remember, he thought the solution was an actual solution to building some sort of explosive his father, George Theodorkis, delivers food to the judge's apartment, and the judge asks him about his past with Violet Westing. George says they went out when they were kids and wanted to get married, but that her mother came between them. The judge realizes that Sam Westing hadn't pushed Violet to marry the senator. Her mother had. The two can't figure out why the parents aren't playing the game, and the judge brings them back to trying to decide which player Westing was gunning for. They decide that it's probably Mr. Westing's ex-wife and that she has got to be hidden amongst the players and that they need to protect her. Alright, so chapter 21 is titled The Fourth Bomb. Here we go. The door to apartment 2C opened. Flora Bombach screamed and Turtle flung herself on the pile of money they had been counting. It was Theo, not the thief. Can I borrow your bike for a few hours? It's very important. Theo was not a runner like Doug, who was fuming about his being so late. He needed the bicycle to follow Otis Amber right now. Turtle stared at him in stony silence. I didn't make that sign in the elevator. Besides, you already kicked me for it. Please, Turtle. She still wouldn't answer, punk kid. I had a long talk with the police today, but I refused to tell them who the bomber was. What's that supposed to mean? What does she think it means? It means that he and everyone else knows that Turtle is the bomber. Never mind. Can I have your bike or not? Why do you want it? Theo ground his teeth. Take it easy. Anger won't help any more than blackmail did. Try being a good guy. I saw Angela in the hospital today. She sends her regards. What's that supposed to mean? 
You let me have that bike, Turtle Wexler, or, or else. Turtle did not have to ask what or else meant. Police bomber, Angela. But how did Theo find out? Here, she threw the padlock key across the room and waited for him to rush out before she let go of the money. He's such a nice boy, Flora Bombach remarked. Sure, Turtle replied, dialing the telephone number of the hospital. Angela Wexler, room 325. Room 325 is not accepting any calls. Turtle hung up the phone. If Theo knew, others knew. Angela had set off those fireworks, wanting to get caught, but it was different now. Now she was confused. Now she was just plain scared. They could force a confession out of her in no time. The guilt was right there, staring out of those big blue eyes. Maybe they're questioning her now. Baba, I'm not feeling so good. I think I'll go home to bed. Weaving through rush hour traffic on Turtle's bike, Theo trailed the bus to a seamy downtown district across the railroad tracks where Crow and Otis got off. Skid Row. The pair wandered through the dimly lit, littered, and stinking street, bending over grimy bums asleep in doorways, raising them to their unsteady feet and leading the ragtag procession into a decaying storefront. Paint was peeling off the letters on the window. Good Salvation Soup Kitchen. A drunken wreck of a man lurched into Theo, who put a quarter into the filthy outstretched hand, more out of fright than charity. Snatches of hymn singing drifted toward him as the last of the, last of the stragglers staggered through the door. Theo crossed the narrow street and pressed his nose against the steamy soup kitchen window. Rows of wretched souls sat hunched on wooden benches. Crow stood before them in her neat black dress, her hands raised toward the crumbling ceiling. Behind her, Otis Amber stirred a boiling pot in a big iron pot. Theo pedaled back to Sunset Towers at a furious pace. Whatever brought Crow and Otis Amber to these lower depths was none of his business. He hated himself for spying. He hated Sam Westing and his dirty money and his dirty game. Theo felt as dirty as the derelicts he spied on. Dirtier. The judge thought, they had finished with the heirs. Not quite, the doorman said. McSouthers. Alexander McSouthers, called Sandy, age 65, born Edinburgh, Scotland, immigrated to Wisconsin, age 3. Education, 8th grade. Jobs, mill worker, union organizer, prize fighter, doorman. Married, 6 children, 2 grandchildren. Westing Connection, worked in Westing Paper Plant 20 years fired by Sam Westing himself for trying to organize the workers. No pension. Sandy turned to a blank page, pushed his tape glasses up the broken bridge of his nose, and looked at the judge. Name? It had not seemed sporting to investigate one's own partner, but McSouthers was right. This was a Westing game. Of course, she had kept some facts from him about the other heirs, but only because she did not trust his blabbering. Josie Joe Ford, with a hyphen between Josie and Joe. Age, 42. Education, Columbia Law Degree, Harvard. The judge waited for the doorman to enter the information in his slow, cramped lettering. He had to be meticulous in order to prove he was better than his 8th grade education. It's a pity he had not gone further. He was quite a clever man. Jobs, Assistant District Attorney. Judge, Family Court, State Supreme Court, Appellate Division. Appellate has two P's 
and two L's. Never married, no children. Weston Connection? The judge paused, then spoke so rapidly Sandy had to stop taking notes. My mother was a servant in the Westing household. My father worked for the railroad and was the gardener on his days off. You mean you lived in the Westing house? Sandy asked with obvious surprise. You knew the Westings? I barely saw Mrs. Westing. Violet was a few years younger than I, doll-like and delicate. She was not allowed to play with the other children, especially the skinny, long-legged black daughter of the servants. Gee, you must have been lonely, Judge, having nobody to play with. I played with Sam Westing. Chess. Hour after hour I sat staring down at that chessboard. He lectured me. He insulted me. And he won every game. The judge thought of their last game. She had been so excited about taking his queen, only to have the master checkmate her on the next move. Sam Westing had deliberately sacrificed his queen, and she had fallen for it. Stupid child, you can't have a brain in that frizzy head to make a move like that. Those are the last words he ever said to her. The judge continued. I was sent to boarding school when I was twelve. My parents visited me at school when they could, but I never set foot in the Westinghouse again, not until two weeks ago. Your folks must have really worked hard, Sandy said. An education like that costs a fortune. Sam Westing paid for my education. He saw that I was accepted into the best schools, probably arranged for my first job. Perhaps more, I don't know. That's the first decent thing I've heard about the old man. Hardly decent, Mr. McSuthers. It was to Sam Westing's advantage to have a judge in his debt. Needless to say, I have excused myself from every case remotely connected with Westing affairs. You're awfully hard on yourself, Judge, and on him. Maybe Westing paid for your education because you were smart and needy, and you did all the rest by yourself. This is getting us nowhere, Mr. McSuthers. Just right. Westing Connection, education financed by Sam Westing, debt never paid. Theo, upset over his skid row snooping, took out his anger on the up button, poking it, jabbing it, until the elevator finally made its way down to the lobby. Slowly the door slid open. He stared down at the sparkling, sputtered arsenal, yelled and belly-flopped to the carpet as rockets whizzed out of the elevator inches above his head. Boom, boom, a blinding flash of white fire streaked through the lobby, through the open entrance door, and burst into a chrysanthemum of color in the night sky. Then the elevator door closed. The bomber had made one mistake. The last rocket blasted off when the elevator returned to the third floor. Boom. By the time the bomb squad reached the scene, by way of the stairs, the smoke had cleared, but the young girl was still huddled on the hallway floor, tears streaming down her turtle-like face. For heaven's sake, say something, her mother said. Tell me where it hurts. The pain was too great to be put into words. Five inches of turtle's braid were badly singed. Grace Wexler attacked the policeman. Nothing but a childish prank, you said. Some childish prank. Both my children cruelly injured, almost killed. Maybe now you'll do something, now that it's too late. Unshaken by the mother's anger, the policeman held up the sign that had been taped to the elevator wall. The bomber strikes again. On the reverse side was a handwritten composition, How I Spent My Summer Vacation, by Turtle Wexler. Grace grabbed the theme and shook it at her daughter, 
who was being rocked in Flora Bombach's arms. Somebody stole this from you, didn't they, Turtle? You couldn't have done such an awful thing. Not to Angela, not to your own sister. Could you, Turtle? Could you? I want to see a lawyer, Turtle replied. The bomb squad, faced with six hours overtime filling out forms and delivering the delinquent to a juvenile detention facility, decided it was best for all concerned to escort the prisoner to apartment 4D and place her in the custody of Judge Ford. Judge Ford put on her black robe and seated herself behind the desk. Before her stood a downcast child looking very sad and very sorry. Not at all like the turtle she knew. You surprise me, Turtle Wexler. I thought you were too smart to commit such a dangerous, destructive, and stupid act. Yes, ma'am. Why did you do it, Turtle? To hurt someone? To get even with someone? No, ma'am. Of course not. Turtle kicked shins. She was not the type to bottle up her anger. You do understand that a child would not receive as harsh a penalty as an adult would, that there would be no permanent criminal record? Yes, ma'am. I mean, no, ma'am. She was protecting someone. She had set off the fireworks in the elevator to divert suspicion from the real bomber. But who was the real bomber? Nothing to do but drag it out of her, name by name, starting with the least likely. Are you protecting Angela? No! The judge was astounded by the excited response. Angela could not be the bomber, not that sweet, pretty thing. Thing? Is that how she regarded that young woman, as a thing? And what had she ever said to her except, I hear you're getting married, Angela, or how pretty you look, Angela? Had anyone asked about her ideas, her hopes, her plans? If I had been treated like that, I'd have used dynamite, not fireworks. No, I would have just walked out and kept right on going. But Angela was different. What a senseless thing to do, the judge said aloud. Yes, ma'am. Turtle stared down at the carpet, wondering if she had given Angela away. Judge Ford rose and placed an arm around Turtle's bony shoulders. She had never wished for a sister until this moment. Turtle, will you give me your word that you will never play with fireworks again? Yes, ma'am. While we're at it, do you have anything else to confess? Yes, ma'am. I was in the Westing house the night Mr. Westing died. Good Lord, child, sit down and tell me. Turtle began with the purple wave story, went on to the whisperings, the bedded down corpse, the drop peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and her mother's cross, and ended with the $24 she had won. Either you or Doug who called the police? No, ma'am. We were too scared. We just ran. Is that a crime? The judge said it was a criminal offense to conceal a murder. But Mr. Westing didn't look murdered. Turtle argued. He looked asleep, like he did in the coffin. He looked like a wax dummy. A wax dummy? Now Turtle was the one surprised by the excited response. The judge thinks it might have been a real wax dummy, not a corpse at all. Then what happened to Sam Westing? The judge regained her composure. Not reporting a dead body is a violation of the health code, but I wouldn't worry about it. Is there anything else, Turtle? Yes, ma'am, Turtle replied, glancing at the portable bar. Could I have a little bourbon? What? Just a little? On a piece of cotton to put in my cavity? My tooth hurts something awful. Relieved at not having a juvenile alcoholic on her hands, Judge Ford prepared the home remedy. Is that better? Good. You may go home now. Home meant going to Baba. Baba loved her no matter what, and Turtle didn't care if the others thought she was the bomber, except Sandy. He was walking toward her right now, 
walking his bouncy walk, but not smiling. Sandy is disappointed in her. He thinks she hurt her own sister. He doesn't want to be friends anymore. How's my girl, Sandy said, cupping his hand under her chin and lifting her head. Woo! Hidden the bottle again. It's just bourbon on cotton for my toothache. Yeah, I've heard that before. Honest, Sandy. Turtle was pointing inside her wide-open mouth. The doorman peered in. Wow, that's some cavity. It looks like the Grand Canyon. Tomorrow morning, you're going to see my dentist. No back talk. He's very gentle. You won't feel a thing. Promise you'll go. Turtle nodded. Sandy smiled. Good. Then down to business. My wife's having a birthday tomorrow. I thought one of your gorgeous striped candles would make a swell present. There's only one candle left, Turtle replied. It's the best of the lot. Six super colors. I spent a lot of time making it. That's why I wouldn't part with it. But since it's for your wife's birthday, Sandy, I'll let you have it for only $5. And I won't charge you sales tax. Try not to stick your fanny out so far, Angela said from her chair. Now that Sidel Pulaski depended on crutches, she lurched clumsily, hobbled by old habits. Just keep reading those clues, the secretary straightened, shoulders back, stomach in, until her next step. With her telephone switched off, and the contagious disease added to the no-visitor sign. The bomb victims had privacy at last. Sedell had twice read the entire will aloud. Now Angela, her hands unbandaged, was reshuffling the collected clues. Grains, spacious, grace, good, hood, with, beautiful, majesties, from, thy, purple, waves, on or no, mountain. Again, Sedell ordered. Change them around, and read either the word on or the word no. Both together are confusing. Good, spacious, grains, with, grace, on, thy, purple, mountain, hood, waves, from, majesties, beautiful. Shh! Someone was at the door. Angela picked up the note that was slipped underneath. My darling Angela, I guess the sign on the door means I should stay away too. I understand. We both need time to think things over. I'll wait. I love you. Denton. What does it say? What does it say? Sidel pressed, but Angela read only the postscript aloud. P.S. You have another admirer. Chris wants to give you and Miss Pulaski one of our clues. Flora Bombach has seen it too. The word is plain. Like an airplane? Sidel asked. No plain, like ordinary. Like the wide open plains. Plains, grains, quick, Angela, read the clues again. Good, hood, from, spacious, plain, grains, on, with, with, beautiful, waves, grace, thy, purple, mountain, majesties. That's it, Angela, we've got it, we've got it. Sidel could barely control her excitement. The will said, sing in praise of this generous land. The will said, may God thy gold refined. Angela, America, America, purple, mountain, majesties. Angela, whoopee! Fortunately, Sidel Pulaski was close to the bed when she threw her clutch crutches in the air. All right, fifth graders, that's where we'll stop for today. At the conclusion of that chapter, we've got a lot to think about. In the next episode, we'll s summarize the chapter we just read and see if we can make sense of some of these new clues and new ideas. Thanks for tuning in again, fifth graders. Now go bake, go build, go make music and tap into those things you've always wanted to do. Be well. <laughs>